You are listening to episode 226 of This is Type 1. Today, we are talking with Mary Jane Roche from the Diabetes Link about their resource hub. Mary Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be back. I feel like the first time I was lucky enough to come on the show, we were talking a lot about the chapter network. And since then, I've switched roles into um, more of the education side of things. So I'm excited to talk about it. Excited to have you back. Let's uh, start off just with a refresher for the people listening for what is the Diabetes Link and then specifically, what do you do there now? Yes. So the Diabetes Link is a nonprofit organization formerly known as CDN or the College Diabetes Network. About a year ago, we rebranded because College Diabetes Network was all about serving college students, which is a super important demographic. It's a huge transitional point in anyone's life. But by shifting our focus a little bit, we're able to be inclusive of all young adults, not just in college, but you know, if you're a teenager figuring things out, if you're in your 20s like myself, living on your own for the first time, navigating your first career, we recognize that that transitional period happens for those who don't go to college too. So we are serving all young adults with diabetes and creating space to eventually serve those with type 2 as well as type 1. Historically, we've been serving only those with type 1, but we know that lots and lots of people in that age range of like 16 to 30 or so are being diagnosed or have type 2. So they need a space too. And I'm excited that, you know, that's on the horizon. And in terms of what I do, my title is the program manager of education. So back up. There's actually three like main things that the Diabetes Link does. One is peer support. We have a college chapter network, which are in-person communities on college campuses. They look a little bit different based on that school, what students are in in the chapter. They might do advocacy. They might do events. They might just have a group chat in case someone needs low supplies or an extra sensor. And we also have an online community through Discord. So that has been growing, which is super cool. After peer support, we have leadership development. The two major programs within that are the NextGen Fellowship for young adults with diabetes who are interested in working in the field. So that could be if you want to be an endocrinologist or a diabetes educator, or maybe you want to do marketing for Tandem or do research in diabetes. I think there's a lot you can do outside of clinical work to be part of the diabetes space. And then the third thing is education, which is where I come in. So the main things with our education programming is the resource hub, which is an online learning platform. And we have off to college events. So those take place sometimes in person, mostly virtually for those thinking about going to college as well as their parents or caregivers. Because like I mentioned, it's a big, a big, big time in someone's life as they're figuring out how to become independent. And there are a lot of questions that come up. So yeah, I have my, my background just like briefly. I went to college for psychology. I originally wanted to be a therapist. Then I found out I had type 1 diabetes. Surprise. And that eventually put me on a path 
towards being more interested in health education in general. So I have my master's in health and wellness management, which is kind of like community health education, kind of like public health. But that's kind of how I ended up in this role with education. That's so cool. What a cool like path to like get to the link and the resource hub and everything. Definitely yeah. unexpected. <laughs> oh, for sure. So who is the primary audience for the link? And then who's the primary audience for the resource hub? So for the diabetes link in general and the resource hub, young adults with diabetes. So there's not an exact specific age range, but like 16 to 30 teens and 20 somethings. And as I mentioned, historically focusing on type one diabetes, but working on creating space for other types as well. And then in addition to that, we have secondary audiences. So we connect with clinicians who can hopefully take our resources, our programming and pass it along to their young adult patients, as well as caregivers and parents, like I mentioned, with off to college, or if they see a resource, they can pass it along to their kids. But definitely the main focus is all about young adults with diabetes. So since this episode is about the resource hub in particular, how did they get started? I know that there have been instances where Jesse and I have talked about topics that we could discuss on the podcast. And then we we talk about those those topics and they're like, are we ready to actually talk about those? Or like, are we comfortable talking about them? And then we saw that yeah. the resource hub just kind of popped up and was talking about those things. So <laughs> how did it come about? Yeah, no, I think, you know, there's a lot that went into it. So previously, what our resources looked like were these 60 page printed guides or PDFs. And now that we're in 2023, I don't think anyone's going to scroll through 60 pages to read anything, even if the information in there is really, really good. So we knew that it was time to shift all of our educational materials to an online platform. And exactly like you were just saying, Colleen, there's a lot of diabetes education out there. And it's important But we kind of come from the lens of being like that reliable older sibling or a friend who gets it while also having everything like very much clinically (laughs) validated. Because sometimes you don't want to ask your endo how to smoke weed when you have diabetes. You might not want to ask them what to do with your pump when you're preparing to have sex with someone. And it's information you really need to know, but it's super uncomfy to ask. So I take a lot of pride in the fact that we were willing to dive into these sensitive topics. So hopefully the work that we're doing is normalizing a lot of this, figuring out how to have conversations, whether it's with your parents, with your endo, with your friends, about any topic really. And I feel like the common thread through that is all about like self-advocacy. You arm yourself with the materials so you know how to talk about things. And then you go out (laughs) and you, you take care of it. Yeah. I feel like the resource hub, just how you described, is kind of like those radio talk shows where you call in with a problem and you have complete anonymity to get the help you need, except they don't have to call in. They just have to go to the resource hub and find the information. Exactly. And like, Oh, I am beeping. I feel like when you think about this age range in general, 
I listen to dating podcasts. I listen to... No, I listen to a lot of dating podcasts. But there's there's stuff that you want to know just as a young adult in general. And like anything else, having diabetes adds this extra layer, whether that's adding stress or confusion or you got to do your research. So I think not only having resources that cover these topics, but doing it from that young adult specific lens is what makes it really important. So for example, next year, one of the topics that we are going to add to the resource hub is accommodations. And accommodations doesn't sound that exciting. You get them for class if you need them. But there's a lot out there that young adults might not know about, whether that's being able to get a free national parks pass because diabetes is considered a disability. Maybe you didn't know that you can actually board the plane early if you're going on a flight. I do um, that. So I do that every I, time. I heard about that in, I don't know, like May or something when I interviewed another guest. And since she told me that, I've been pre-boarding every single time because getting the overhead bin space is my worst nightmare if you're in a group three or group four, depending on whatever airline you board with. And then there's also the planes where they're like, oh, we have reduced bin space this round and we're only taking 50 bags. And like the stress that that causes is solved when you just pre-board. Absolutely. And I think... We don't have to dive too deep into planes, but I think it's <laughs> I've twofold. flown like 30 times in the last year, so flying is on my mind. Well, I'm glad you're taking advantage of it. You know, diabetes is annoying as heck. So I feel like you have to, to take the perks when you can. You know, you work hard and it's exhausting. And also sometimes you're sitting in an airport for three hours and you're high and you just want to get settled. Or you're like me and you walk around because you're bored and then suddenly you're going low and you don't want to have to deal with that while you're trying to wait in line and listen for the right group and all that. But anyway, like young adults travel, they go on spring break, they're taking road trips with their friends. So this is all stuff that they need to know that you might not dive into as much with your provider. Which I will say, I do follow the link on Instagram and I have like I, I do use a lot of the tips and tricks that are posted there and at the hub too. I love that. As yeah, a, a lot of <laughs> oh, <sorry>. oh yeah. <laughs> a lot of our Instagram content comes from all those programs that I had mentioned previously. So we try and like adapt some of the stuff from the resource hub to make it even more digestible. Because personally, I go to social media for the memes. I want dog videos. I just want nonsense. And we post that too. We've, we've got the memes. But while you're scrolling for hours on end, it's kind of nice to like learn something and also just see something that's so relatable to you specifically like as you're living with diabetes. Absolutely. So speaking of some of the topics that come out of the resource hub, what are those like most popular topics you guys will post about or talk about or research about too? It totally depends. And it does shift a little bit depending on the time of year. Also say, if I haven't mentioned it before, the resource hub just turned one. So we are in pretty like early stages of figuring things out and deciding what we want it to look like moving forward. But I would say... Over the past year, our most popular ones have been our newer topics. So that includes mental health and well-being, 
sex and diabetes, partying with diabetes, and relationships. There's also a lot of interest in off to college. So it covers a huge area of content, but I think everyone's always looking for something different. You might be looking for something different to learn about. And one thing that's really cool about the Resource Hub, not to get too in the weeds, but it's hosted on a content experience platform as opposed to a learning management system. So an LMS is if you ever had a job and you have to do like harassment yes. training and you click through yes. all the modules and then you do the quiz and I don't know, it's just like kind of awkward and long and boring. Ours is specifically meant for experiencing these resources as content. So it gets to see, okay, this person is looking at a couple things about relationships and then they've looked at a couple of resources on sex and diabetes. It will recommend for you what it thinks you want to learn about next. It's like the for you page, essentially, but for learning. So I think it's really cool. What are you doing to help people find the hub? I mean, besides the the usual stuff on social media and if there are chapters already on college campuses, what else are you doing to to reach the people who need to to see these these resources? Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of traditional marketing that we do, whether it's through all of our different social media platforms or through our chapters, new or existing. We also partner with a lot of organizations within the diabetes space. So sometimes we will put their resources on the hub. If we feel like they're really going to serve our audience, there's no reason to recreate the wheel. There's already a lot of... There's a lot going on in the diabetes space already. But on the other hand, they also will see our materials and say, we need we need to share this with our audience, whether it's JDRF, other podcasts. We have lots and lots of corporate partners. So I think just spreading the word is something we definitely need to continue to do to get these out there. So what does the process look like for creating content for the Resource Hub? Okay. I'm so excited to talk about this because I feel like as if you're someone using the resource hub, you see these finished products, whether they're videos or infographics or peer perspectives, which is another word for a blog. But there's so much that goes into it. And it's funny because I do not take my lived experience with diabetes for granted. And I think it gives me passion and perspective on creating a lot of these. But there's so much cool background research that goes into it. So when we're coming up with a topic, so in December, for example, we're releasing new resources all about diabetes technology. I go through peer-reviewed journal articles. I look at other partners within the diabetes space. I look at resources about how young adults learn in general and kind of compile all of that to help guide what we want these to look like. And it's not just, oh, we should tell them about these options for insulin pumps. We start by developing goals for each topic. And each goals, each goal has a set of objectives and learning outcomes. So ideally, if you are coming into the resource hub and you're going through 
a set of resources within a topic, you are going to come out of it feeling confident in whatever we set those learning outcomes to be. So maybe for technology, it's I can list the main features of an insulin pump. I can define what barriers there are to accessing technology. I think it's really interesting just coming at it from more of a curriculum development perspective as opposed to or in addition to content development. And the other main thing that goes into it is working with experts in the field. So clinicians, researchers, as well as young adults, because we all know that we learn best from our peers. (laughs) That's where my diabetes education at first after being diagnosed, I feel like that's what had the biggest influence on me, learning from people who had gone through what I had gone through. So I'm very grateful that I get to connect with all these people and build relationships and take their expertise and share it out. So as a follow-up question to that, where does the data collection come from? And how does that kind of process work? So like, for example, seeing like the statistics on social media and stuff like that, where does that come from? Hold on. Do you mean... So I have like, we collect data through the resource hub that tells us you've had this many viewers, they spent this amount of time. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, that and like, okay. where did the statistics come from? Like as a side question, where did the statistics come from that you guys post about too? Okay, cool. Yeah. So the first thing is I mentioned we're hosting it on this content experience platform. It's called Path Factory. And they are able to gather lots of analytics. So that will help us determine what resources are people attracted to, what's working, what's not. Because we know that people learn in different ways. Some people are more attracted to videos. Some people just want to screenshot an infographic and save it for later. And since I did pull up some some stats. So since January 1st, we've had over 520 hours that people have spent on the resource hub. And that is a stat that I'm very, very proud of. The average session time, again, since January, is over five minutes. So if you think about when you go on a website, I will spend the least amount of time there as possible. I'm trying to click through, get what I need. But this shows us that people that visit the resource hub are deeply engaged. They are going, they're watching full videos, they're searching through information to find what they need. And the other stat that lends itself to that is our binge rate, which is a weird term. But essentially, that means that someone is looking at at least two resources. And our binge rate is over 40%, which is actually a lot. (laughs) Like I said, it takes people a lot to go to a website and to stay there. So I would say first year, we're doing pretty good. I'm really content. And I'm excited to take everything that we've collected and look at it and use it to fuel what the following years look like. And in terms of like stats that we post on social media or that you might see on our website, a lot of that comes from our diocensis. It used to be known as the Young Adult Survey, if you've heard of it. But this is research that we are collecting specifically from this young adult age demographic. And we're collecting demographic information, asking about burnout, distress, 
management tools, and again, as an organization, gathering all of that will help us determine what we do with our programming moving forward. The survey this year just completed within the last month or so. Don't don't quote me on the exact date. And we have partners that are going through all of the analytics. So stay tuned because I'm hoping they're going to have some really cool stuff that we can share over the coming months. I remember filling it out. So you have oh, my did response you? somewhere in there. Yeah. Amazing. Did you get a pin I or like not. a magnet? You know, I think we sent out little like, was a pin, a magnet, a little postcard to the first thousand people that filled it out. Oh, I probably was not um, one of the first thousand. But you know what? That's okay. Because you still filled it out. And that's going to make a difference. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jesse, do you have any more follow-up questions about data in particular? No, I was just interested in that. Thank you for answering my questions. <laughs> of course. So who decides what content gets posted to the Link's Instagram? And I guess I mean, we've probably already talked about this, but where do those content ideas come from? Yeah, it comes. those come from a couple places. So we have a marketing and communications team. So they specialize in taking all of the amazing work that we're doing as an organization and putting it out into the world. So it's a combination of those three sections that I had mentioned, peer support, leadership development, and education. So we want to share about all of the work that we're doing and all of the opportunities that are available. And then there's the other side of things where we have content creators, so young adults with diabetes that share, whether it's memes or reels or TikToks, they create those for us. Because again, we are very much by young adults, for young adults. I'm going to keep saying it. But I I think that just like we take young adults to be in our resources, I think it's just as important to have them on social media, showcasing their authentic experience as someone living with diabetes and as someone who knows a lot about the organization. A side note, follow-up question. What's the cutoff on the on the high end for a young adult? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, a bit of a blurry line. We'll never exclude anyone if our resources <laughs> serve you. Then great. But usually it's like 16 to 30-ish. Okay, because I'm, I'm 30 and now it's like I'm aging out. Oh, no, I, that's the thing. I feel like I'm 27. And I feel like in five years, I'm still going to feel like I'm like 23. So (laughs) I think young adult is more about how you feel. I saw, um, this is sort of related, but I saw a TikTok or a meme or whatever of a girl who was born in 2004 holding ultrasound pictures for her 2024 baby. And there were, there was a picture next to it or after it of a millennial who was born in like 91 saying, I feel like any pregnancy in my age group is still teen pregnancies. <laughs> and whenever whenever there's like a situation that requires an adult, I'm like, am I the adult? Is this adulting? This is weird. I am still very much not used to the fact that my friends are getting married. Yep. People are having babies on purpose. <laughs> I yep. am just proud that I made my own frozen pizza for dinner. <laughs> and that is a win for me. And I don't have to compare myself. So it's okay. (laughs) 
So as a summary for the millennials in the room, Jesse, what are your opinions here? <laughs> I'm just, I, uh, I know. I just, I'm just thinking about my friends who are now getting married too. And I'm like, oh yeah, no, it's just, I don't know. I'm at the point where I'm like, that's normal for them. Not for me yet, but you know, good for them. I'm happy for them that they're able to do that. And then it also makes me feel better knowing that there's like no pressure to get married. There's no timeline for anybody to do anything. And I would rather travel while I'm young than have children. So those are my... And get on the plane early. Yeah. And now I can do that because now I know about that more (laughs) and can. (laughs) I will be doing. I love it. Okay. So getting back on track with this uh, resource hub stuff. What are, well, I guess, what are the current projects that the link is working on that are maybe outside of the resource hub and inside of the resource hub? Okay. So the two within the resource hub, because this is my area of expertise, we actually have two different grants that we're working on, which is super exciting. So the first one is testing out four of our topics within the resource hub to see if the young adults that use these resources have improved health outcomes. So those topics are, I think I mentioned them, mental health and well-being, sex and diabetes, relationships, and technology. So these will be studied through the University of Washington and will measure things like diabetes distress, your confidence levels with certain topics, and other benchmarks like A1C or time and range. Because it would be really, really cool to find out that all the work that we're doing has that level of impact. If someone goes through an entire topic or module, if they come out on the other side feeling more confident overall managing their diabetes as it pertains to that topic. And then similarly, the second grant is in partnership with University Hospitals and Dr. Julia Blanchett. She's super cool. And we're creating something called the T1D Financial Toolkit. So this is specifically for those with type 1. And this is going to be a series of resources all about health insurance and financial literacy. And same kind of vibe where hopefully people that utilize this toolkit feel more fluent in the language of insurance because we know it's super confusing and not the most exciting. So if we can take our young adult expertise lens and put that on insurance, I think it could make a really, really huge impact. As someone who hates having to deal with insurance, just like everybody in the diabetes world, and the fact that we just got an announcement today in my work that we're we're technically, we're switching providers, but it's really just a company that's owned by the company we're already with, but we're getting new insurance cards. And so it's like all, sor- all sorts of confusing. I have become an expert in reading insurance benefit plans to figure out what is the cheapest thing for me. And like, what am I going to have to pay out of pocket? I have so many spreadsheets. It is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do so much math figuring out which insurance plan I need to pay for every year. I know you think with diabetes, it's just the carb counting math, but no, yeah. the insurance and all of the expenses, there's so much. I literally have my like sticky note that says get an FSA. <laughs> so I mean, that's on my November to-do list. But the crazy yeah, thing I've... is when I started the job that I currently have, the for the very first time ever in my corporate history, 
a high deductible health plan with an HSA was actually the most cost effective. And so I I have a, a high deductible. I knock it out with like three supply shipments in the beginning of the year. And then the rest of the year, it's like a, I don't know, an 80 to 90% coinsurance. But that was the cheapest plan. And for the rest of my, all of my life before that, it's always been the, like the PPOs and like whatever they're called, where you HMOs. have a slightly higher premium, but a lower deductible. And now I've had to switch it because all of my math spreadsheets said that was cheaper. So much math. I I will say I have learned a lot just as an individual with diabetes through doing this research. And I I liked to think that I had a good grasp on insurance. I don't think I did, but now I do. So thank goodness. <laughs> well, I am excited to to see what you guys come up with for the, that particular track because I still get confused by stuff. Absolutely. And I will mention that you know, those topics in the first grant, those are already out. Those are on the resource hub. These specific new resources about health insurance won't be posted on the hub for probably two years. Just different studies have different recommendations. But the stuff that we have up there is still pretty recent and helpful. So (laughs) just throwing that out there. Real quick, I can speed through just current projects not necessarily related to the resource hub. We just had our peer support day as part of National Diabetes Awareness Month. Peer support is really, really huge within the organization. Our chapter network is our flagship program. That's how CDN and now the Diabetes Link started. So that was really fun. Just mostly kind of silly things to celebrate how amazing it is to have friends and people in your corner who get it. So there was a meme competition who could make the funniest meme. We gave out gift cards. There was a silent disco. That was very fun. I made my background on Zoom, like disco balls flying everywhere. And the other big thing that we already talked about was the diacensis because that had taken a hiatus last year. So collecting that data is super cool. That's all. No, very cool. I'm happy to hear about all that stuff. (laughs) So when it comes to like outreach programs to either your primary audience or a secondary audience, what does the link do to get more people involved? Yeah, I think this is always something that we're working on, especially, I don't know, needs change and look different all the time. So obviously... Outreaching through social media is huge just due to our audience. But the other way that we reach young adults right now is through clinicians. So while we're not creating resources for them or programs for clinicians necessarily, we know that they are engaged with young adults that might not be engaged with the diabetes community. So really what we've been working on is trying to figure out How do we get people that are outside of our close-knit bubble? Because we know that the diabetes community is super cool and helpful and amazing, but not everybody is quite there yet. I think one thing that has really helped over the last year or so is our Discord server. For people that aren't familiar with Discord, the way that we talk about it sometimes is like, it's like Facebook groups, but for Gen Z or like gamers. So there's one server and there are multiple channels within it. And each channel has a different topic. So it might be 
travel or medical students or I don't know. There's like a million channels in there. So I don't know why I'm blanking. But should I open Discord and find out? Because I'm in there. Oh, yes. (laughs) But I think what Discord does a really good job of doing is capturing that middle ground. So for example, I was diagnosed at 21. I was in college. There was a chapter at my school. I had the person, the chapter leader's email. They gave it to me in the hospital. And I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, that, that's not for me. I can't do that. In retrospect, that would have been the best thing for me, but it was also new and I was feeling overwhelmed and I didn't know what I needed. But what I did do was lurk on everything the chapter was doing. I wasn't ready to be involved, but I was curious. And I think that that's what this Discord does really well. If you want to participate and you want to be in those conversations, great, go for it. And there's that that pressure is taken away of, you know, you're, you're on the internet. You, <laughs> you can have a username. You can share as much or as little as you want about each other. And if you don't feel comfortable posting, you can see what other people are having conversations about related to diabetes. So I wish that this was there back when I was diagnosed, but I'm very glad it exists now. And it's been growing really well. So I'm excited to see where it goes. So I'm in the Discord right now, and some of the channels are Motivation Station, Mental Health, and there's uh, 18 plus topics. There's Gym and Exercise, Travel, Diabetes Research, Hobbies, International Peeps, Off to Work, College Life, Sex and Diabetes, and then I see the memes in the Silent Disco one that you were just talking about. So those are all pretty fun. I highly recommend like scrolling through the memes. They were so good. And one other thing about Discord that you just touched upon is it is separated by age. So when you log in or you create an account, you have to select a role. And this looks different for if you're in a hiking server versus the Diabetes Link server. But you let us know what your age is. So if you're under 18, you're a little bit more protected and there are different topics that are specifically for you. And then once you're over 18 or you're in college or whatever, there are different channels that open up for you and then you won't see those other ones anymore. So trying to figure out a way to have a super inclusive space while also giving those different ages what they might need. Can you give us the rundown of what Take the Pledge means with relationship to November and Diabetes Awareness Month? Oh, yes. <laughs> so this is this is really big and kind of kicked off National Diabetes Awareness Month in New York City. Usher was there. Other cool people were there. But essentially, committing to take the pledge, we are working with other diabetes organizations on getting information out to the public about stages of diabetes. Stages of diabetes are very new to me. Type stages of type 1 diabetes. But essentially, there are three main stages. And the third stage is when you need insulin. Maybe you're in DKA. Like I am six plus years in now. I'm very much stage three. But if you do this screening, that's it's taking the pledge to do the screening, then hopefully you find out I don't have anything in my system that says I might have type 1 diabetes. But if you do, we now have the developments that 
you can postpone that diagnosis potentially up to 10 years, which is crazy. So I think the idea of screening and having that information can be really scary, especially for someone, again, not in the community, they might not know a lot about it. But as someone who is already living with diabetes, if I could have put it off another 10 years, not only for just my mental health and burnout and all of that, but physically have diabetes longer, push off any potential complications in theory would be really crazy. So essentially, all of these organizations are working to spread the word to those who might not have diabetes yet in hopes that we can postpone it super far down the line for them. One thing I'm curious about, and I have zero intel obviously, but Usher has a son with diabetes. So he was a big voice for this campaign. And I know that he's doing the Super Bowl halftime show. So I'm curious if he's feeling some type of way, if he'll say anything about it or like literally just say, take the pledge, like in the middle of his performance, because the Super Bowl is like the most viewed sporting event or probably anything on television every year. So if he's listening, Usher, highly recommend. If Usher were listening, that would be so cool. And I could end this podcast being so happy about that. I didn't know that you could put off getting type 1 diabetes for 10 years. I thought it was like six months max. I didn't realize it was like 10 years. It's the teplizumab drug that was recently FDA approved. Right, but like I think it was right after we started this podcast, I saw the person who developed it speak at a JDRF event, and she was just like giddy with excitement. Oh, and, how um, cool! Yeah, and so what she, her research showed that they could delay it, yes, up to ten years, and then I think there were some instances where the people who were taking the drug had not yet developed it and had been as long as it possibly could have been. So there's potential that it could delay or or stop onset, depending on how early your stages are in the stages of diabetes and how how much environmental factors are included, because environmental factors are a huge part of developing diabetes. Pretty sure that's what happened to me. But if we can delay it for up to 10 years or potentially longer, you might be able to take this drug if you have those markers and put it off forever. So it, it could be a cure, but I'm not going to actually say it's a cure because it's not guaranteed. Yeah. I think what's cool about it, and let me just say I am very much not an expert on this yet. We will be doing resources next year all about the stages, so stay tuned and hopefully I'll be an expert next year. But yeah, it like you said, Colleen, it's all about what stage you're in. So the earlier you might be able to acknowledge it, in theory, the more you could potentially postpone it. and. As an individual, I am not necessarily hopeful for a cure for type 1 diabetes, not to be a downer. But imagine if at some point everybody's getting screened, we just keep like postponing it. I think that's the closest to a cure that we're going to get. And if these developments keep happening, not to be a conspiracy theorist, (laughs) you know, maybe you can postpone it longer and it'll get to the point where no one has type one anymore. Who's to say? Yeah. I'm spreading I'm misinformation. You. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you on the the whole there's probably not going to be a cure in our lifetimes just because 
of how often the doctors and researchers and scientists have been like, oh, a cure is five years away. And they've been saying it for the last 50 years. But it's nice to see all the research and it's nice to see what they are doing, even if it's not technically a cure, like we're going to give you a pill or give you a shot and your diabetes is gone. So all the things that they are coming up with, it's all great progress. I'm just not confident that I will ever be able to take something that gets rid of my diabetes because I've had this since I was two. Right. I I would love to be proved wrong, though. Maybe Usher can do that, too. Yeah. Putting it out there. Please, please prove us wrong. (laughs) Okay. So as we wrap up our interview, our lovely interview today, is there anything about the Resource Hub or about the diabetes link that we didn't cover but would be beneficial for listeners to hear? I feel like we did a great job doing kind of a deep dive, but I will throw out one plug and that's that we're always looking for young adults or experts. Like if you have an endo who's really great or a diabetes educator, we're always looking for participants to help create the resources. So if either of you or anyone listening feels particularly passionate about a subject or a topic within diabetes, we're constantly putting it on social media when we are in search of volunteers and when we have opportunities. Sometimes those are volunteer opportunities. Sometimes they're paid. I will specify when the the time comes. But yeah, if you're ever looking to get more involved, would love to have you guys or any of your listeners share their experiences. Something I like to tell people is that the more involved you are in the community, the better your A1C is. And uh, that's something that I found out shortly after we started this podcast, where the I think the the December after we did started this, my A1C dropped like a stone to 5% even, and it had never been that low before. So anybody who wants to get involved with the diabetes community can take Mary Jane up on her offer and maybe lower <laughs> your A1C in the process. <laughs> there we go. And when these studies come out, Hopefully I can say that for real. Like it'll be clinically validated. Um, I I don't know if it actually is or not yet, but I heard that from Rob Howe who runs Diabetics mm -hmm. Doing Things. And I think he had said something about there being research into it, but I don't know what the source was. I, my, um, my boss, her name's Crystal. She always talks about it as emotional insulin. Like when you're around Ah. people with diabetes, something just happens and like suddenly your insulin sensitivity is better or like you're saying your A1C goes down. So I really do believe in the power of community. That's funny because when I was growing up, whenever I went over to one of my friends' house and she also had diabetes, my blood sugar would always go low. Every single time without fail, it was like the the air in her house was insulin and my blood sugar would just drop like a stone. And so we'd have to have low snacks every time I was there. But emotional insulin, that is a really cool way of saying it. I love that. Yeah, I like it. I have to start using that from now on. She like probably just took some emotional insulin. That's why I'm low, you know, <laughs> just randomly. <laughs> I'm hoping that the emotional insulin kicks in for me and my pizza. <laughs> oh, yeah. How is the blood sugar here. right now? It's not bad. I mean, it's not where I want it. I've got 221, but it's a fairly like flat line. So I think I'm going to go take a shower. That'll help. And I'll be good to go by the time I go to bed. So thanks for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what is the best way for listeners to connect with the link and take advantage of the resource hub and all the goodies that you guys have? Amazing. So I would recommend going to our website, which is just thediabeteslink.org, or finding us on social media at the Diabetes Link. We're on TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn. 
is Twitter still called Twitter? No. But X. <laughs> maybe maybe go to the other ones first. But yeah, I think that's that's your best way to stay connected. We're always posting about opportunities and events on socials. So definitely recommend giving a follow to see what's happening. We will link to all of the links that the link just shared and all the resources and the resources <laughs> for the resource hub. <laughs> we'll link to all of that in the show notes and you can always find whatever you're looking for over there. So Mary Jane, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the Resource Hub. Thank you for having me. This was amazing. You guys are great. Yay. All right, everybody. Remember, you control your diabetes. It does not control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com slash community. I can't wait to see you there.